Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are in the studio to record a different kind of podcast. Wisconsin Lutheran College, like all universities, have suspended face-to-face education due to the spread of the coronavirus. So online education is the norm for a while. So Wade and I have decided to team up and record some audio for our students in lieu of classroom lectures. It's not ideal, but we think our discussions will be better than hastily made videos in which students have to look at our ugly mugs as we are drawn on without the benefit of a live audience. If you're not a student, we hope this will be beneficial to you as well. Although not exactly classroom experiences with visuals and lively discussions, we hope that these episodes will give you an insight into the type of fun we have here at WLLC. And so, Wade, you have uh, uh, graciously uh, come on for my class now. We just finished one up for your class in ethics. Yeah, and talking, I kind of, it worked out great for me. I. It was vocation, which is Mike's baby, so I got to kind of sit back and, and not have to do work. So. We should really do this, like tag team all of our courses. Like, It'd be, be like fun. half the work. Actually, it would be fun. I feel like you'd fun. make fun of me a lot, though, hurt my feelings. <laughs> um, and vice versa. Today, this is uh, Christian worship, theology of Christian worship, and I take one day where... What's the, what's the course number on that, Mike? Theology 312. 312. 300-level class. Um, and I take... We talk about this throughout the... Of the semester, but I usually just take one day and I say, okay, here's some denominational differences theologically that get played out in the worship of the individual congregations of said denomination. Um, and, and what I do a couple things is I'll draw this big chart where I say, here is Lutheranism in the middle, here to the right is Roman Catholicism, here to the left is your general Protestant world, and, and we're going to leave Eastern Orthodoxy for a little bit later. And I say, wouldn't it be nice if you walked up to church um, and you looked on the church sign and you saw Lutheran or Roman Catholic or Methodist and you knew exactly what you were going to get when you walked into that church, but the reality is that that's not true. And so I have these three columns, but then I have um, <clears throat> uh, rows that go across, and they are movements that are true of every denomination. So there's Pentecostals in every denomination. There are what we loosely would call uh, demythologizing liberals. So they take out kind of the myths of the, of the Bible. There are conservatives in the sense of people who just conserve things to conserve them, right? So in America, think maybe of the political far right. There are also... Um, uh, church growth. Think business type people that uh, see people uh, in their pews as members, kind of a prosperity gospel kind of thing. And then there is confessional or classical Christians. So there's people who really take the Roman Catholics church confession seriously, or the uh, uh, classical reform confessions like the Westminster Catechism. Catechism. If you're if you're Anglican, the Thirty Nine Articles. If you're Lutheran, the Lutheran Confessions. And so you That'd have this. Good, sorry to interrupt. Go. That'd be a good free-for-all. In our normal episode, students, we do free-for-alls. But uh, if you had to pick another confession, like you couldn't have the Lutheran confession. Yeah, we've, we've thought about that. Like with uh, like I would which kinda, one of our children. I would children think about go, the 39 articles. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're based off of the Augsburg confession. Yeah. yeah. All right, go ahead. Though. So, and, and I say to them, this is kind of, uh, you know, one of those things like off-the-record people. Here's the deal is when you go out into the world, um, I'm for denominational loyalty. We here at WLC are not trying to make uh, the Methodist or the Roman Catholic Lutheran. We're not going to be afraid of our Lutheran heritage, but we're not trying to steal you, that kind of thing. And um, I'm all for that, 
but what you need is a preacher, right? We've talked about this. We need, you need somebody who's going to give you the, um, the pure gospel week in and week out. And when you go into the world and you move and you were brought up Methodist or Roman Catholic or Lutheran, you go to your town and you find your, your denomination church, you may find something completely different because it could be a Pentecostal Lutheran or it could be a church growth Methodist or it could be whatever. And yet at the same time, this great cultural artifact, this great tradition that is Christian worship with its differences in from denominations really does kind of stay, stay relatively the same in the sense that there's some doctrinal underpinnings to this. And so one of the first days in, uh, uh, of our semester, if you remember students, we talked about Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, the rule of prayer is the, is the um, rule of, of faith. So what you believe is going to affect what you do on Sunday morning and vice versa. What you do on Sunday morning is going to affect how people believe. Those things just cannot um, be separated. And this is true not just of Christian worship, but of all religions, including what we might call a secular religion, right? There are certain things that are nationalistic. There are certain things with our sports. There are certain things with our culture, um, um, our stories, our fables, even Aesop's fables, and, and, and all of these kinds of the history, how we tell the history of a particular people or a particular nation. They affect what we believe about ourselves and about other people. And you can't really tie those to, you can't really separate those. So what I'd like to do in this lecture um, is kind of just go through some of the basic denominations and just point out some differences with the caveat that if you're Roman Catholic or if you're Methodist or if you're Lutheran, you may scratch your head and say, that's not what happens in my parish. Well, that it is kind of the wild west out there right now. All we can go by is the confessions of a particular denomination. So I'll start with, I'll give a few uh, comments on Roman Catholicism, and then Wade, I'd like you to each time kind of uh, add uh, add something well, to it. Well, can I ask go a ahead. question real quickly? Mm -hmm. We mentioned denominations, and you've probably already gone through this with your class. <clears throat> what do we mean by denominations? Sure. I mean, think of like a, a, a denomination of, uh, of money, right? That's a $1 bill or two bucks. A three dollar bill, um, all Christian, right? We're defining Christians here. So their religion is the same. Yeah, the religion is the same. All Christian, and we would maybe define Christianity as: Do you accept the three ecumenical creeds? Yeah. <laughs> you know, can you recite the Apostles' Creed without crossing your fingers? Um, do, do you actually believe Trinity, two natures of Christ, uh, salvation in Christ? Um, but there are, they're going to be, the first great division is East versus West, and then the Catholic West, um, of course, at the Reformation, is going to go first evangelical, and then sort of the church, and then uh, evangelical sort of gets tied to what we now know as Lutheranism, then you have a radical Reformation, and within those groups, there's going to be splinters and splinters and splinters. And then, of course, these big movements that go across all denominations. But what we mean by denomination, what's on the church sign? What's on the church sign? Is it Lutheran, Presbyterian, um, Congregationalist, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic? Um, and and uh, maybe a side note here is that we do divide ourselves up in the West and the East differently. In the East, they tend to divide themselves up by country or culture. So a Bulgarian... 
uh, Eastern Orthodox Church versus a Greek Orthodox Church, where in the West we tend to be uh, more uh, theological. What's the theology of the Roman Catholic Church? So let's start with the Roman. Well, in that idea, just briefly, Mike, the you know the idea of it's what you value. So like a denomination of money. Sure, that's a good. It way. makes sense what you're about to do then, yeah. because the things that have shaped denominations as far as what they value are usually doctrine or practice mm-hmm. or doctrine and practice. So there's some denominations that are founded because of their confession of the faith. But there's also denominations that have formed because of practice, what the worship service looks like, or the church organization. Think of in America, Anglicans um, became being called Episcopalians. Right. Well, they have bishops, Presbyterians have elders. So Congregationalists some, are by congregations. Yeah, so it's a what they value, it makes sense. It's going to reflect itself in, in what you see on Sunday. But sorry, I'll be quiet now. No, no that's great. And, and we, of course, could have hours and hours of discussion about all these different ones. And, uh, and so, but let's take some basic ones. Let's take the Roman Catholic church. So, uh, again, not saying necessarily this is what happened with your local congregation and your priest. Um, this is, uh, just kind of going by the confessions of the Roman Catholic church in its history. So worship in the Roman Catholic church is something that people do. Um, in particular, you can be tied to the non-bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ in Holy Communion. You are being connected to Jesus Christ and you're offering up your life and your worship to God. And so the arrow, this is one of the things that we pointed out at the beginning of the semester, the big question is, in where does the arrow go? Is it from God to me or is it from, um, uh, is it from God to me or is it me to, me to God? The arrow will be pointing up this way. That when I come and I do the work, ex opera operata, the work by the work being done, we've talked about that already in our class, that I go to this worship and I am lifted up and I offer myself up with Jesus in a non-bloody way in Holy Communion. And so, uh, uh, Wade, you know, what, 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 what are some of the good things about Roman Catholic doctrine that get played out in the church? I'm thinking, well, Jesus is really there in in uh, the service in body and blood. And so there's a sense of awe and reverence and beauty, but what are some of the bad things with the canon and the mat, the canon of the mass, this whole idea of a non-bloody sacrifice where, where, where connect Roman Catholic theology with what they do on Sunday morning. Sure. And I think uh, it's an interesting question. It wasn't one that I was <clears throat> prepping for uh, before today. Cause we didn't know we were going online until recently, but I've actually, you know, Mike, been trying to go to some of the historic churches in Milwaukee as of late. And during break, I was trying to go to some of them to catch uh, the Catholic ones to catch daily mass because it's a great time to get in and, and kind of see the church. So I was, I've was, i been at St. Stan's, which does the extraordinary Latin mass, the old school Latin mass. So I mean, past the priest is in Cope and everything. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going down south, this is the one with the two smaller gold domes yeah. off the freeway going south and, and of 94. And most, most of the historic Catholic churches, the really beautiful ones, are on the south side because for some reason the Poles in Milwaukee just built more beautiful churches, Catholic churches, than the Germans. But, uh, yeah. um, but, uh, but that being said, there's a lot of churches we're seeing. And uh, been at St. Anthony's, which is, uh, their Mass is an interesting mix of Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and then at Josephat's, the cathedral, where I know you take students uh, uh, for a Basilica, class. Basilica, Basilica, the cathedral's yeah. at St. John's Evangelist. Yeah, I was sorry there. Um, but having grown up in Catholicism myself uh, for the first 18 years of my life, it, one of the things that's interesting as I've, I've gone now 
uh, is some of the mass revisions that have taken place since when I grew up. Uh, the big one that trips you up um, is the Lord be with you. And when I was growing up, we said like the Lutherans say, yeah. and also with you, yeah. and now they say, and with, and your, with your spirit, spirit again. Yeah. And the reason for that is if you go to a Latin mass, that's what the Latin says. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also tinkered with the translations of the creeds a bit, which is, is different. But I would say uh, some of the good things we see, and understand good in my view means, uh, as a Lutheran, as I look at them, so many of these these things are things that the Lutheran Church adopted or brought in. I would say the importance of the visual, mm-hmm. um, that we are a, a we have a God who is incarnate, right? So the prohibitions against images in the Old Testament don't stand in the same way. Our God has a face in Christ. Um, and so the recognition um, of that, I would say a sense of reverence, um, that what is taking place there is something serious. It's God coming to us, or the presence of God uh, um, in the Lord's Supper being emphasized. Uh, I would say uh, in the liturgy of the Roman Church itself, um, the Christological things that are developed uh, in many ways are, are helpful. <clears throat> what what I would say is, interestingly, some of the less helpful things are the same things. <clears throat> so the visual. What is represented in the visual? Well, one of the big differences you'll see between a Lutheran church and a Roman Catholic church is that many of the things represented in the visual represent difference in teaching. Saints, <clears throat> Mary, now, Lutheran Church may very well have a, a, a statue of a, sta- a saint or of Mary and, and not be not be sinning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but the idea of these in places where they are to be venerated or reverenced, uh, I would say with the um, the sense of reverence, what's being reverenced then is is very important. So that's connected with the visual. You'll notice. Um, in many of the old historic, the beautiful, you know, Roman Catholic churches, the tabernacle becomes a very important place of, of reverence That's where the where host put, is yeah. kept. Uh, um, and at St. Anthony's, for instance, after the Mass, they have Eucharistic adoration. Mm-hmm. For a Lutheran, that's a very uncomfortable thing because, right, we believe you should take and eat, take mm-hmm. and drink, not um, use it as an ad- object for adoration. It's about outside. God coming to me rather than me adoring God so right. much, yeah. Um, and then I would say the... The, the liturgy itself, much of which we've taken over, and the, the wonderful Christology in many parts of it, also becomes problematic, as you mentioned, with the canon of the Mass. It's very interesting when you go to a Mass, re, under, think about the, the places where the congregation kneels mm-hmm. and while, why, they, why, why they are kneeling. Um, and the main reason they are kneeling is because a sacrifice is being offered. Mm-hmm. And so the, the priest will tell the congregation to pray that his sacrifice will be acceptable to God. And then they say, Lord, let me your sac- sacrifice be acceptable to God for our good and the good of all this church. And so um, the direction is... Now, there's still a there's a, still a downward aspect, right? Mm-hmm. People are communing. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Catholics have a leg up on us with this whole coronavirus thing because they can just say the blood is in the body <laughs> and just give the host and they don't have to worry about the... the big debates about common cup or individual cup. But I would say there we see um, something problematic. And then in what the primary role of priest is within that rite, you'll hear some very good homilies and some not so good homilies. But the priest is not there primarily as, as preacher or proclaimer. 
And even in how Lutherans give the Lord's Supper, it's a pro- proclamatory thing, right? We're taking the bread and wine, and the, the pastor then proclaims to the people what it is and why they get mm-hmm. it, the body of Christ given for you. Um, but the priest is there much more in the sense of an Old Testament priest um, to offer sacrifice for God. Yeah, and so the theology... And, and the, the building is built to that. If you go to any of the churches I mentioned, which are worth seeing, there's two side altars mm-hmm. in addition to a main altar. Um, this, this, what is taking place at the altar is the predominant thing. And so the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, at least on the books, is going to be you are offering something up to God. This is pleasing to God. It is, it is not wholly you doing it. Jesus Christ obviously did something as well, but it's not completely God's grace. It is you're being connected with this. And so the worship then is going to fit that pattern. Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. Maybe we'll shift gears just a little bit here. We could go on forever there, but this is just kind of an overarching, just to nail some things down in this class period. And uh, we talk about these things in passing throughout the semester. Um, let's, let's switch then to uh, kind of more of a reformed. So I'm thinking classic reform, not necessarily Arminian, but classic reformed. And uh, this won't take too much long, long because I think uh, it's very unique to Lutheranism and the classic way of doing the service, and so there won't be too much going on there. Um, but a classic reform doctrine is going to be um, uh, saved by grace alone. It's absolutely God doing it. Mankind offers nothing there. However, um, in classic reform doctrine, that also means that some, be, some people are predestined to hell. And so worship becomes a little bit of a funny thing, even though the structure... You know what I, you know what I call those people? What's that? Mics. <laughs> um, so the, the structure is may, t- may maintain the same kind of structure as the church always has. You know, it would be very familiar to Roman Ca- Catholics, to Anglicans, um, and to Lutherans. Um, but why go to church, right? And for some, it is to kind of prove to yourself and to everybody else that you're part of the elect, or it becomes kind of a, a lecture hall, and it be- can become very much law-oriented. Um, this is how you should live now that now that we got that salvation thing out of the place. Now, that this is kind of unfair because I, I think there's a wide variety and fantastic, wonderful Reformed theologians out there. But that, historically, this is the movement... That- both Zwingli and Calvin, the trajectory that takes yeah. place there. And often anti-Roman Catholic, at least early on. So get out the smells and bells, right? A very, a very uh, suspicion towards anything fancy that's going on Against there. the visual in general. Yeah. Very rational over against uh, uh, trying to uh, curb any kind of superstition. So, And we've talked about that in our class period. But I want to go maybe the Arminian way now. So... Armenian, the main difference between Arminianism and uh, Reformed and Lutheran is the doctrine of the will. Do, do people have a bound will when it comes to things above, spiritual things? Does God have to do the saving? Or is there something, a spark or something, just a little bit in humanity that can make the decision, that can make them first move towards God? Think decision theology. You have to make your decision for Jesus. Billy Graham. Yeah. How is worship going to look different then if you have this doctrine? You're being saved by a decision you're going to make. So wait, maybe I'll kick it to you, Wade, and you can, you can get the ball rolling, 
rolling there. How is worship going to look different from a Roman Catholic to one extreme or a Lutheran maybe, but then in an Arminian church in the other way? Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Didn't realize you were asking me a question. Uh, you're the student, and I have to say, okay. please put your phone down. Say, say the question again. Yeah, I had a student email. So an Arminian, uh, a free will, this is about a decision that you're going to make. Um, how does that doctrine affect how a Sunday morning worship is going to look like? Yeah, and this is, I think, um, most people who experience a Protestant church in America experience a... Most people who experience a, a Protestant church in America are going to experience uh, a church that's been impacted by Armenianism. Um, even among some of the Reformed and Lutheran churches, absolutely, we yeah. will see things that come out of Armenianism. And so how this view of the will is going to impact worship is, is going to be, uh, it makes perfect sense how it will impact worship. You have to appeal to the will. Right, you have to get someone at a point that they are ready to make a decision for Christ, and so with time, Arminianism and America, like meeting, is the match. Uh, I would say match made in heaven, but <laughs> right, it is it is the match, um, and so Americans will have these great revivals and these awakenings, um, and they will become very adept at whether it be the anxious bench where you put mm -hmm. the the sinner until they get anxious enough to make a decision for Christ. <clears throat> the music that develops uh, that is geared towards leading someone to make an emotional decision. So it's music that is more inclined, inclined to appeal to your emotions, to lead you to, to kind of sway and be into it. Um, the structure of the service, oftentimes the message, as it'll be called, um, which we see the Reformed influence there, uh, will, um, because it's the Lutherans who believe that the, right, you, you do the sermon to someone. Yeah. Um, here you're setting information in front of people so they'll make the right decision. And, uh, and so I, from a confessional Lutheran point of view, I would say it's, uh, the service is manipulative. Mm -hmm. And by that, I don't, I don't mean that as a, I'm not trying to say these are bad people that are mm -hmm. not manipulative, like a predator or something, yeah. but, uh, it is meant to lead you to do something to make a decision. <clears throat> uh, because it's influenced by uh, it also, right, Arminianism comes as a response to the Reformed and among the Reformed. It's going to maintain anti-papism, as it historically would be called, a leeriness of anything that smacks of Catholicism. Um, and so if there is visual stuff, it's going to be things that are visual in a way different than what you would find in a, a Lutheran church or a Roman Catholic church. And um, you're not going to have much of the Western right there present in it. And it's going to be more individual. Now, you're still doing corporate things. You're singing together, but you're worried about your individual reaction mm -hmm. in that setting, your Christianity, um, which will lead to eventually, and this is not original Arminianism, but where we are today in America, um, church shopping, yep. right? The idea of, I'm going to find what works for me. Hyper-individualism um, in America goes hand in hand with the history of Arminianism. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's been said, and I can't find this quote, but it has been said that, um, 
Doug, thinking about this manipulation for a second, and I, I try to tell my students, like, manipulation is not a bad thing. Like, I, if I go to a movie, I want to be manipulated. I right. want my emotions manipulated. The question is, what are you trying to manipulate them for? Is it a law gospel thing? Like, I really want you to feel, be stung by the law and then be relieved by the gospel. Or is it manipulation towards a, an emotional experience so that you can give yourself up, like you're doing something for Jesus? And it was said that the, the, the first and second great awakening, probably more the second great awakening, <clears throat> um, uh, that this kind of, when you really start getting to this uh, emotional kind of music and preaching and stuff, um, that that influenced Hollywood rather than Hollywood influencing the modern church. So sometimes we, you know, if I'm an old, uh, old guy, get off my lawn kind of guy, and I see the rock band in church, and I go, that ain't church. And I have, I really don't have any reason to, to um, rational reason to argue against it. I just don't like it. Um, and I say Hollywood's getting coming into the church. The truth of the matter may have been that Hollywood looked to these people who manipulated for their tactics. It was really kind of the other way around. And so American Arminian theology, as we've said, go hand in hand and play off each other in this in this modern period. Um, so manipulation's not necessarily bad. It's asking the question: What are you trying to be manipulated towards? And and it could be it could be fire and brimstone preaching. It could be um, something uh, like a prosperity gospel. This is going to be good for you. It could be some sort of uh, healing kind of thing. Uh, you can think of these tele televangelists. It could be, um, I want to make your, be your, your life better right now. Um, it's, it's very much felt needs and stuff like that. And, and, and notice with that, um, there's a theology of glory that's inherent in this from a Lutheran perspective. Because if the decision is to, or if the goal is to get people to make a decision, um, right, to make a decision for Christ to come to faith, then we want to find the most effective means for doing so. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to assess means. Well, what becomes the, the aim or the, the way of assessing means is the number of conversions or the, the number in attendance or the size of the building. Um, it lends itself uh, to... And um, sometimes an obsession, but at least an inclination to a lot of measuring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a very business model, and you can th we could throw in capitalism. Uh, again, we're not criticizing crap capitalism necessarily here, but uh, free markets and all that kind of stuff with this Armenian hyper individualism. All this kind of comes together in the history of America. American religion looks different than the rest of the world. Even much different. I was just in Canada. Much different to Canada too. Uh, it, it just it just is different, and uh, it's hard to untie all of these all of these things. Um, and by the way, at the end of this of this period, we are, I, I will ask the question: What can we as Lutherans learn from each denomination? We're not trying to put ourselves above everybody else. In fact, repeat this throughout the uh, the course and the theology of Christian worship. That I think. Lutheranism's goal is to say everybody gets to be Lutheran. And in fact, we don't even like the word Lutheran. It, this is something that the church has always done, has always taught, and we want to take the center uh, uh, middle ground here, not just for being the middle, but kind of saying let's not go too far left or right because we want to maintain the Catholicity of the Christian practice because the faith doesn't change, because the doctrine doesn't change. And so while we are open to variety and we're not tied to the past, 
we fully understand that if we go too far to the left or the right, well, let's not be so arrogant to think that we're not being influenced by, uh, by uh, the culture um, or by uh, something worse like the devil trying to get in a work righteousness through the back door. So broadly speaking, Armenians were talking uh, some Baptists, um, you know, in their worship, most Baptists will be theoretically Arminian, but your non-denominationals, your mega church kind of thing. And what I've always kind of find interesting here is that, 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 uh, uh, after the medieval church, uh, the history of the, of worship medieval church was adding things over and over again. A lot of it was beautiful and it was great, but it, it kind of, lo- I tell my students, it's kind of like a, a ball of tin foil. Like after, you know, about like 14, 1500, there's so much going on that you kind of get lost away from the core. And one of the things that, that, uh, the, the reforms of the Lutheran church really wanted to get back to was participation of people in the liturgy, singing the hymns, the vernacular, knowing these things. And my students have, we've already been through the history of, of, of worship already. So they kind of know this ironically with kind of an entertainment worship, you'd listen to a, a you know, 30 minute sermon and there's 30 minutes of, of songs that you may or may not be able to sing uh, along with, um, that Christians have become passive again. Right. And so, uh, it is that kind of physicality of, of not just Holy communion coming up and God's actually present there. Um, but you, you, you are interacted with God in a little bit is something that, uh, ironically, we've gone full circle again that uh, Christians become, worshipers become passive. Well, and I think here's something important to keep in mind. We look at kind of the medieval mass as it developed, and maybe you go to a extraordinary Latin mass today, and you might not see that as being extremely performative, right? Because you're viewing it today. But one of the goals of the medieval mass was to be performative and to... Uh, induce awe at the sacrifice of the Mass, at what mm-hmm. the priest was doing. Think of the um, rood screens that would be opened just for the, the consecration, and that's when the priest would say hocus corpus, which is where we get hocus pocus, mm-hmm. right, as people didn't know Latin. And you could, you, could, you, could, you could get a check mark by your name just by being there at yep. that moment. But this was meant to be somewhat manipulative too, um, even your body postures as this went. And so... Um, I think the comparison you make with singing is very interesting and helpful. If you go to a a big mega church, uh, most of the singing will be led by a praise band that's being performed. You can join if you mm-hmm. want. The Roman Catholic Church, post-Vatican II, as it tried to increase participation, succeeded somewhat. But still, if you go to a Roman Catholic chat, uh, the Novus Ordo ma- Mass today, mm-hmm. it's still going to be largely led by a cantor mm-hmm. or a choir or a priest. <clears throat> um, and so a lot of it is... Um, and that's okay to an extent. Yes, yeah. uh, but it is. it does make historically Lutheran somewhat unique in that it was known as the singing church. And that's not to be triumphalistic about mm-hmm. Lutheranism, but it is interesting how there's um, kind of de- parallel developments in both those instances. But the, you just have to remember, if you ever go to a Latin Mass, you have to remember that that was designed to convey... Um, something about the priest and what was taking place. And it was actually meant to instill awe as best they, they could at that time. They didn't have um, screens and light shows and smoke. Um, but the design of the church, the priest being deep into the chancel, mm-hmm. Vatican II has kind of brought the priest mm-hmm. forward more, um, 
where the people were in relationship to the priest, the the ringing of the bells and stuff like this, this this um, was meant to have a similar effect. Absolutely. Um, maybe one more thing that I forgot to say about Roman Catholicism and the idea of the sacrifice of the Mass. I think John Pless, our friend, is very helpful of, of making the point that for Lutherans, the sacrifice of the Mass was not, that, that was something that was not like just, oh, that's stupid, get rid of it. But it was something that was moved from the church service where we do something for God and it was moved out into the world in vocation. So the sacrifice of worship, Romans 12, 1, which we began our semester with, if you're, if you're students listening here, uh, that sacrifice was then out into the world, right? So I go to church not because um, I'm doing something for God. I go to church because I'm getting God's love and then I'm taking it out into the world. Did you just say you guys did Romans 1? Or 12, excuse me, Romans 12, 1. You know Romans is mine here, right? Yeah. That's my class. Right. I only use 12, 1, and then I'm like, and then I say, I'm not going to say anything else about Romans because that's that's St. Okay, Saint, Saint Paul Johnston. It's my so book. So, yeah. Okay. So, okay. All right. Let me briefly go sort of Eastern Orthodox because this is kind of, it's unfortunate just, but we are in the Western world, and so we tend to uh, think about uh, Western things. Um, but there's a whole other side of the church and Eastern Orthodox worship. I'm just going to kind of explain that let you get uh, a few comments in there. And then I'd like to end with this question posed to you is, what can a Lutheran, and when we're thinking about Lutheran, we're trying to thinking about the, the best of, of both the Catholic and Evangelical word, this world, this Catholicity that goes all the way back uh, to the apostles, really to the synagogue worship. Um, what can we learn from the Roman Catholics? What can we learn from their Arminians, that kind of thing? Uh, we don't want to come off and say we got all the answers. In fact, I repeatedly say Lutherans are the worst, <laughs> um, uh, especially when it comes to worship in, in America. All right, Eastern Orthodox worship, just some historical things. Uh, you're talking about 1000 AD, the great schism between East and, and West. There's cultural differences. Uh, there's language differences between Latin and Greek. There's some poly, church polity differences, the Pope being the superior bishop in the West and, and the patriarchs, the, the um equality of bishops in the East and the different places like Alexandria and uh, Constantinople and Jerusalem. Some other things like the date of, of Easter. We already mentioned that when we look in the West, we tend to uh, say, what do we value? Uh, that was a nice way of you putting it, denominations. I'm Roman Catholic, I'm Anglican, I'm Congregationalist. And then the very, I'm non-denominational, which is very Baptist and denominational, but that's a different story. Where in the East, it's, it's more of a cultural thing. It may be a city like Antioch, um, but mostly like a, I'm Russian Orthodox, I'm Bulgarian Orthodox, I'm Greek Orthodox. It's very much tied to the community. And it's right from the beginning, we see uh, instead of an individualism, we see more of a corporate kind of, kind of thing. Theologically, uh, you know, Westerns, uh, in the Western world, uh, original sin is like hereditary guilt. And the solution would be like a, a forensic thing, a lawyer, where in the East, they're going to highlight. It's not like we def say one way is uh, better or not, it's going to be wh where you emphasize things. It can be hereditary uh, depravity, and the solution would be more of the sense of rather than a lawyer, a doctor. So salvation tends to be highlighted more forensically in the West. In the East, we have this concept of theosis. Uh, you know, human beings can have a real union with God. So they become like God in such a degree that you uh, participate in the, in the divine nat nature, not that you become gods, but that you become the fullness of the divine image, this kind of stuff. Um, 
So in in the word, uh, or in the in the West, the the word and sola scriptura, but also the scripture and church tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, where in the East, um, kind of a sense of a, a community and a, and a church that the Spirit of God does speak through the traditions of the church, not in the not necessarily in the sense of the Roman Catholic. This is what the Pope or the Council says, but there is more of a community aspect there. So. Uh, this gets played out in worship a little bit more. The West tends to be a little bit more about the intellect and about text and, and engaging the text in, in, in that sort of way, where the East is, is really going to be much more about worship and prayer and aesthetics and this kind of uh, theological uh, uh, approach, uh, one that often describes God by negation, speaking of God in terms of what he is not. Um, rather than presuming to describe what God is, right? It's there's just a little bit more mystery. There's a little bit more mysticism that's going on there. And so when we in the West think about what is orthodoxy, what is right, we, we tend to think, think of it as a legal way. What does the texts say? But orthodoxy for the Eastern Orthodox is going to be much more about right praise, which is actually the original meaning of orthodoxy. Think doxology as, as um, um, a praise and then ortho like orthodontics, making my street, my, my teeth straight. It's about that straight praise uh, as in correct praise. And so you do not mess with the liturgy in the East where we could flippantly just move it around. It's not a big deal. You do not mess with the liturgy in the East. You mess with the creeds, you're messing with faith. Um, and we don't think that way. And so this is why they get really worked up about um, uh, saying, uh, you know, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That was the original. And then in the West, they add the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Both agree that that's true, but you don't mess with the creed. So if you go to an Orthodox service, uh, it's going to be very elaborate. Uh, there is individual piety within the group. So it's not, it's not, it would not be odd to see somebody walk up in the middle of the service and go kneel at an icon, pray and kiss it, that kind of thing. And, and we already talked about icons, uh, another part of the, of the, of the class or will, but the idea of the icon, uh, not necessarily you're worshiping that particular picture, but that the icon draws you in. There is a there is a meaning behind that. That is a focus of your uh, of your worship. Um, so in orthodoxy, this is for Frederica Matthews Green. In orthodoxy, there is a wider acceptance of individualized expressions of piety rather than a sense that people are watching you and getting offended if you do it wrong. Much more of a mystical way of thinking about things. Some other things that would strike us as different if you went to orthodox churches, uh, it's very elaborate even in its words. So there's kind of a, uh, a flippant phrase that, why say something in 10 words when you can say it in 100, right? They're going to repeat things over and over and over and over again. Um, it, up, up in front, there's going to be uh, the iconostasis, which is a wall that goes between the, the nave where the people sit in the sanctuary. Um, it is a closed off kind of thing. You are, you, it's definitely, there's a mystery of Holy Communion going uh, on there. There are usually three doors always three doors, I should say. There's the royal doors, the middle doors, which have an icon of Christ, and then the Theotokos, the mother of God, Mary, with child. Um, there, This is the door out of which comes the Holy Communion. The door is only used by the priests and the deacons. And then in, there's a, a, a northern door to the left, 
Michael, the archangel, and then Gabriel is in the, the south side, what we say is the right side. So uh, if you would go to an Orthodox church, it would be seem from our Western eyes very mystical, um, very elaborate. Uh, it would seem like it has no pattern, but it does, just very elaborate. Um, um, and it, it, it's really an East versus West kind of thing. And so theologically with the theosis that you are on this process of becoming divine-like over against kind of a very forensic, you are declared not guilty by these very words, the worship is going to feel different that way. So I wish we had more time to go on that, but we need to end real quick here. And, and so uh, unless you have anything on orthodoxy that you want to add, I'll, I'll pose this question to you. You know, what can a, a Lutheran learn from these different denominations when it comes to worship? I think uh, something that's helpful to keep in mind, um, <clears throat> I think it's Seneca, the Stoic, who said it is. <clears throat> hey, you're is really not, on Stoicism lately. I am, <laughs> but truth is not the province. Um, it's not particular to any one um, group or generation. And so a lot of um, the differences that have taken place in dom- denominations, uh, in them we can ref- we can find reflections of emphases which or things which are in the scriptures themselves, but they're uh, emphasized more in those groups. Now, sometimes practices just come out of doctrine that I just can't agree with. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they do come out of something that, that does reveal something about, uh, for instance, uh, the, the Methodist is going to have a, a higher view of emotion than I'm going to have as a rather unemotional mm-hmm. guy and a confessional Lutheran. But... The gospel is not unemotional, right? Mm-hmm. There's something in that. Um, the uh, sense of Roman of reverence in the Roman Catholic Mass is sometimes a helpful corrective for us when we maybe take for granted what is taking place when we come before God with word and sacrament. Um, the idea that the people in the pews matter, mm-hmm. right, that we're not just going through motions, is something that we can take away from revivalism, although mm-hmm. we, we're not going to make an appeal to the will. Um, but as preachers, we ought not be uh, disconnected from our audience. We should know them and and want to pray, preach in a way that they can understand. And so I think there's things of value that can be found in the theologians who have come out of these different groups. There can be things um, that can be gleaned that can be ex- extremely helpful. Uh, so long as at the end of the day, we remember, and you talked about Lex Arande, Lex Credende, that we, we dare never forget about this relationship. What we pray or how we worship will reflect reflect what our people believe um, and what we believe will hopefully be reflected in in our worship um, and so I think there's I I personally find a lot of value in going and seeing the architecture of different churches and saying why did they build it this way yep. and observing a service and saying why did they do what they did um, and and so long as we do so recognizing that nothing is indifferent we talk about adiaphora and adiaphora are things that are neither commanded nor forbidden, but um, even those are not indifferent in the sense of they have no baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we remember what we do matters, but that we uh, we can also glean, I think, uh, things about human beings and things about the faith um, that that can be that can be helpful. Yeah, I think uh, reverence. Uh, 
the idea that the importance of art and all those things we certainly the heritage of the Roman Catholic Church which is which is our which is all Christians heritage is, is an important thing uh, especially in this time where we are kind of flippant about a lot of things uh, from the evangelical side and I'm broadly evangelical side I'm thinking of reformed I'm also thinking of non-denominational Baptists even we could throw Methodists in there at certain point is well they care about people right and they care about the how how the worship service is going to be quality often they yeah, care about they're going to care how the worship service is going to be consumed by the person right where i think a lot of lutherans can just go kind of go through the motions this is what they what we do and uh, you can think of a poor just from even as simple as a uh, a poorly put together bulletin those kinds of things uh, that that does we kind of Cops stop saying like, oh, that stuff doesn't matter. Well, it, it, it does matter. Quality does matter. So I'm going to end on this, that uh, the old phrase that I have it on my bulletin board, that advice to young Lutheran pastors to um, preach like a Southern Baptist, right? I mean, there is emotion to this. There is passion. There is urgency that you would preside like an Anglican with 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 very high respect of what's actually... Anglicans are like... Anglo-Catholic, like high Anglicans, they they know how to preside. Like, this is not a show for you that Christ's body and blood is actually there. You're going to act a certain way, that you would care like a Polish priest, a pastoral care, um, but that you would confess like a Lutheran. Obviously, we're going to say that, but we mean that in the most Catholic of sense, that this is what the church has always taught, and we only want to reform what was bad. So I I think to have a, a good sense of humility to say, we got a lot to learn from the past, but from our contemporary brothers and sisters, even if they're different denominations, but also to point out this theology affects the way you worship. And if that theology is not where I'm at, then I cannot just take that worship and say that there's going to be no ramifications to people's faith and maybe my own faith. So but with that said, though, we have been given a great amount of freedom because of what Jesus Christ has done uh, for us on the cross. And so, uh, as we like to say uh, at this pad- on this podcast, go live free, friends. Let the bird fry.